My name is Nicola Torbett, and you're listening to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice, or SURGE, and specifically SURGE Faith and SURGE Action. This is the podcast where we put the weekly scripture readings into conversation with the racist realities with which we're living. And we ask what it means in this environment of dramatic inequity and violence to follow a homeless brown-skinned rabbi who lived and taught and ministered and died under military occupation in a tiny vassal nation of a mighty empire. Or more specifically, what does it mean to follow this Jesus when we are positioned more like Roman citizens than like Jesus' first disciples? Because we are a project of surge, this podcast primarily addresses white Americans, citizens of modern-day Rome, We are white people challenging and supporting other white people as we take action to end racism and white supremacy following the leadership of people of color. We welcome all listeners, and we especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. I want to begin this week with something a friend told me. This friend is a black woman, a pastor, doing amazing prison ministry. And a few days ago, she was interacting on a Facebook group, one of those groups populated by clergy in one of our progressive mainline Christian denominations. And in her post, she mentioned prayer warriors. Now, I don't know if you know what prayer warriors are, but if you ever get prayed for one by, <laughs> prayed for by one, you'll remember it. These are folks who stand up during service and make themselves available to pray with people And when I tell you, they will go to the mat with you and wrestle out the demons of self-loathing and trauma and internalized oppression. Prayer warriors are common in Pentecostal churches and especially in black Pentecostal churches. Well, anyway, my friend mentioned prayer warriors in this Facebook group, which, as I said, is populated by clergy from one of our progressive mainline denominations. And maybe here, I should say, predominantly white, progressive mainline denominations. And her fellow clergy, white clergy, started piling on her, arguing with her use of the word warrior. Why do you have to use such militaristic language, they queried. Now, I just want to stop right there and say, this is why we can't have nice things, people. This is why we can't have that beloved community you are always waxing on about. Because the thing is, well, there are a couple of things. One, this is cultural imperialism, using your own perceived superior cultural mores to critique a culture you know very little about. This is white supremacy in action. And two, the critique comes out of such deep obliviousness to the spiritual warfare currently being waged against black and brown people in ways that we who are white can hardly imagine. We are already at war. Black churches need prayer warriors because black people are having to do battle daily with the forces of white supremacy that are by and large invisible to white clergy and which most of us are doing precious little about. And I'm going to take a deep breath here because I think part of the reason I got so upset hearing about my friend's experience is that I could have been one of those critics just a few years ago, back before I got invited into a Black Pentecostal church, 
back before some people, including some Black women, much like the friend who told this story, took a chance on me and thought I might be able to learn, might be able to do better one day. Part of my vehemence is shame about who I used to be and really in most ways still am, a white person who is pretty clueless about the everyday experience of white supremacy. So white folks who are listening, let's pause here and take a deep breath as we become aware of how much we do not know and cannot perceive. Let's acknowledge our shared ignorance and see if we can linger there long enough to burn through the shame, which sometimes shows up as defensiveness or denial or over-intellectualizing or wanting to spring into action, any action, anything to get out of feeling this way. Let's drop down through all of that and feel the grief, the ways that we have failed our black and brown relatives. It's painful, yes, but I think it's also the way to transformation. Not because we're suddenly going to learn everything and be in the know, but because we're going to be able to come with the humility and the spirit of openness and softness that these times call for. Will you pray with me? Spirit of life, holy God, please be with us in this moment. Open us, soften us, melt us. Help us to hear a word from you. Help us to hear a word from people who are literally fighting for their lives. Make us malleable, make us teachable, God. We thank you and we ask your presence with us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Recognizing my own cluelessness has actually given me a way into this week's gospel passage. Not right away, only after a lot of wrestling. Because it seems as if Jesus was talking to a group like me, a group whose cluelessness in that moment causes him to exclaim, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, or you think you do. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Y'all have no idea what time it is or what is happening and about to happen to me and to all the people I stand in for, poor people, colonized people, people from the underside who are struggling to hang onto their dignity as children of God. You have no idea. And you go on focusing on the wrong thing. Let's take a look at the passage that leads up to this exclamation, which is the gospel passage for this week. We'll be focusing on Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 56. Here is Jesus in the 12th chapter of Luke, starting at verse 49. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. 
From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say it's going to rain, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Now, I got to be honest, I did not want to deal with this passage this week. It did not seem to me like the message needed in this time. This week, I can't think bringing fire without thinking multiple rounds from an AK-47. I can't think about anyone bringing fire without imagining that home that exploded last Wednesday in Sterling, Ohio, the one that belonged to an interracial couple and where authorities investigating the explosion found racist graffiti scrawled on the garage. When I think fire right now in this already divided country, I think arson and burning crosses and gunfire And it seems we are already plenty divided. So really, Jesus, do you have to be so incendiary? I mean, I can imagine one of those white nationalists with an assault rifle believing that he is bringing needed fire to the earth, that he is doing the work of Jesus by waging war on immigrants or Muslims or Jews. We've heard echoes of that kind of language in some of the manifestos, haven't we? So honestly, right now, I wish this passage weren't even in the Bible. But I don't get to decide, and it is there. And so I think we who claim the name of Jesus and want to stand on the side of love have an urgent responsibility to deal with it, to try to understand it and make it clear what Jesus was really about here. I'm going to take it piece by piece starting with fire and baptism, moving on to division, and ending with what time it is. In each section, I'll try to give you a window into the ways in which my whiteness threatened to lead me into misunderstanding what I think Jesus is actually saying here. So let's start at the beginning. There are two exclamations right off the bat, back to back, And it is not immediately clear what one has to do with the other. I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Fire and baptism. If we know the Gospel of Luke, we might clue into the fact that this is actually the second time this writer has linked fire and baptism. So looking at the other instance might help us out here. Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 18 go like this. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John, that's John the Baptist, might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand 
to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Good news and unquenchable fire. Curiouser and curiouser. It is almost impossible to hear unquenchable fire these days, immersed as we are in American Christendom, without thinking of hell, right? We hear unquenchable fire and we think eternal damnation, eternal torture for those who are deemed unworthy of God, those so-called bad people. The doctrine of hell is frightening, maybe, but it is also strangely beloved. Maybe you've heard the story of Reverend Carlton Pearson, a black evangelical pastor much beloved by Oral Roberts, another evangelical pastor. Pearson founded a megachurch in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which quickly grew to more than 6,000 members. But when he received what he believed was a revelation from God, that hell was not a place of eternal torment, that hell as he had been preaching it did not even exist, and that instead hell was what we created for ourselves and each other here on earth, well, his church membership started to dwindle. People started leaving in droves. He was formally declared a heretic by the Joint College of African-American Pentecostal Bishops and disowned by Oral Roberts. Soon, his church membership fell below 1,000, and the building went into foreclosure. Woe be to anyone who tries to question the existence of eternal torment. Why is hell so important to Christians that they will disown you if you question it? Well, I think it's really a convenient threat to hold over the heads of anyone who doesn't do as we require, we who have the power to shape the narrative. It's also reassuring, maybe, to think that there is a place away from here where the so-called bad people can be confined, away from us, we who believe ourselves to be good, whereas they, those others, are bad. In this way, the doctrine of hell functions as a model for, say, prison, or maybe even the death penalty. It simultaneously emerges from and bolsters the belief that there are identifiable bad people who are different from good people and need to be banished. And this notion is all bound up with white supremacy, heterosexism, and classism at minimum. As soon as we start thinking that good and evil are housed in different people who deserve different treatment sanctioned by God, we have the perfect setup for systems of oppression. If you'd like to know more on how this has played out, I'll include some resources in the transcript. But for now, suffice it to say that we are in really dangerous territory with this unquenchable fire. And yet, in this passage, Jesus and his unquenchable fire baptism is linked to good news. So we have to consider that maybe we've gotten this wrong. Maybe we've misunderstood what this is all about, this unquenchable fire. Let's look a little closer. John the Baptist says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
there's definitely a separating out here of one thing from another, the wheat from the chaff. But these are not two separate things like good people and bad people. They are part of the same thing, namely a grain of wheat. The threshing process involves crushing the grain to separate the hard outer shell, the chaff, from the softer edible kernel of wheat. Once it was crushed, one would use a winnowing fork to toss the mixture into the air so that the lighter chaff would blow off, leaving a pile of edible wheat on the ground, and then further off another pile of outer shells that then could be burned. That's the metaphor at play here, not the sorting of two different things, good and bad, but the separation of the part that is nourishing from that which is not. But why is the fire that burns the chaff unquenchable? Well, I did a search of the places in scripture where that phrase occurs, and aha, I did find a place where it is associated with something called hell. Mark 9, verse 14, or 43. Mark 9, 43. But the Greek word that gets translated into English as hell there and elsewhere in the New Testament is Gehenna a derivation of the Hebrew Gehenom, Valley of Hinnom. This is an actual place, a narrow valley outside of Jerusalem that was used as a garbage dump, a site of eternal fire used to burn up refuse, for example, chaff, and sewage, a place full of worms and maggots that also make appearances in Jesus' parables, you might recall. But what's even more interesting is why the garbage dump was created in the Valley of Hinnom in the first place. It was created by King Josiah as a memorial and a warning because this particular place had been the site of human sacrifices and especially child sacrifices to one of a number of false gods worshipped at the time. Gehenna or the garbage dump known as hell, was created as a reminder that we must never sacrifice other human beings. That following false gods might lead us to do that, and that a loving God would never require that. It was designed to burn not human beings, but waste. That which is no longer useful, including religious practices that involve sacrificing human life, any human life. The unquenchable fire is meant to be a memorial declaring, to borrow the stirring words of our Jewish relatives, never again. It is beyond ironic that we Christians have turned it into its opposite, a place where we abandon other humans to eternal torment. With the doctrine of hell, we have made the Valley of Hinnom once again a place of human sacrifice and through systems of oppression, the whole world with it. Never again is now. Jesus says, I have come to bring fire to the earth, to say with finality, never again. To put an end to human sacrifices once and for all. To burn off what is no longer useful, and specifically the hard protective outer shell that makes us want to sacrifice others to expose the softness and vulnerability in ourselves so that people can be nourished. This threshing fire is an entirely different kind of fire. It is more of a refiner's fire, 
to use the term from the Hebrew Bible. What does a refiner's fire do? It creates heat high enough to break the chemical bonds that have caused something to calcify into a rigid structure like, for example, an institution. The refiner's fire melts this material, causing it to become soft and malleable so that it can be transformed into something new, stronger, and useful for the flourishing of life. That is the fire Jesus is bringing. I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Jesus is bringing fire through his own baptism by fire, through his arrest, torture, and crucifixion. His way of bringing fire to the earth is not to set fire, not to set fire, but to become fire, to become fire himself, to offer himself fully to the world God loves. He sacrifices himself to end the practice of human sacrifice. I'm reminded of the stories out of El Paso last week, not the big story featuring a lone gunman, but the other stories, lesser known, of adults who rushed into the scene of the shooting to rescue children and other adults who used their own bodies to shield the bodies of others. Who runs toward a shooting? Possibly someone who cares more about ending human sacrifice than they do about saving their own lives. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all have to undertake that kind of heroism, but I do wonder what kind of tempering makes it possible. And I do think it's pretty much exactly what Jesus did, the Savior we claim to follow. When Jesus says he is bringing fire, he is referring to his willingness to undergo crucifixion in the hopes that it would end the carnage. So, my next question is, why then would this cause division? Do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but division Well, we already know by this time in the narrative, right, that Jesus is causing division everywhere he goes. He was rejected by his hometown of Nazareth. His family tried to apprehend him as insane. His brothers didn't believe him. The people of Capernaum ran him out of town. A Samaritan village wouldn't even let him enter their town. His detractors said he was demon-possessed and raving mad. The religious elite opposed him fiercely. Many of his disciples quit following him. No doubt, Jesus caused dissension wherever he went, especially among those scribes and chief priests who have some investment in the existing power structure. Among those who were among the first, the news that the first would be last is not going to go down easy. As Frederick Douglass famously said, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. I tend to surround myself with people I sometimes lovingly call the movement nerds, folks who have spent a great deal of time studying social movements of the past in order to foment powerful movements in the present. And one thing is clear from the research. Movement requires division. When we design nonviolent direct actions, we often dramatize a situation of injustice in such a way that onlookers will need to decide. Which side are you on? Will you choose the side of the police or the side of the children who risked arrest in the Children's March of the Civil Rights Movement? 
Will you choose the side of conservative lawmakers or the fresh-faced dreamers who have locked themselves to the lawmakers' offices? And so on. These actions deliberately seek to create division, to polarize the public, hopefully breaking disproportionately on the side of justice. And it's so much easier said than done. Almost every time there's an action, we hear calls for civility, for oppressed people to be more polite in their petitions for redress. As the 2020 election approaches, these calls for civility are finding a lot of resonance, even among liberal white people. Everyone needs to tone it down, they say, try to come together and find common ground. Whiteness teaches us to accommodate and make nice in the hopes that we will be spared. We love to talk about civility. But as Rebecca Solnit wrote, too often civil means you wear a fresh iron shirt to the lynching. Civil means you use the correct fork while planning the destruction of children's lives and psyches at dinner. Civil means that when you push hate, you do it in a nice distance that doesn't muss you up or create drama in your immediate vicinity. Civil means you can talk up the logic of destroying the rights and lives of others in calm and level tones of voice, with all verbs conjugated correctly. Civil means you're polite to the Nazi and turn your face away from whoever he is beating. This kind of civil is the enemy of civil rights. Jesus was a dismal failure at civility, with all his woe to use. By the end of his life, even the majority of the crowd, peasants and day laborers, along with the more powerful, would cry out, crucify him. Why? I think because it is terrifying when the institutions around which you have built your life and sense of safety are subject to the refiner's fire, subject to love and truth. You see, when you put your faith in false gods, When you put your faith in institutions, you are often asked to make human sacrifices, sacrifices of other humans in the name of your illusion of safety. This is what ordinary white people have done with the institution of policing, for example, and with the whole criminal justice system, our worldly equivalent of hell. We have sacrificed the lives of countless black and brown and poor people at the altar of racialized policing and the prison industrial complex, a place of eternal torment. In this passage, Jesus refers specifically to the institution of the family, not so much, I think, as a nexus of love, as a mechanism for the consolidation of wealth. Truth be told, Jesus was hardly a proponent of family values in any traditional sense. Who is my mother and who are my brothers, he asks, while ignoring his biological relatives who try to silence him those who do the will of God. And whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, etc. And let the dead bury the dead, he says, to one who would go back to bury his father. It's really not so much that Jesus sets out to destroy the biological family, as it is that he seeks to dissolve its bonds enough so that it can be reconstituted beyond biology, a new human family, complete with the redistribution of inherited wealth. Like a refiner's fire, melting old institutions in order to form something stronger and more useful to the flourishing of all life.
Division is a necessary part of that process of dissolution and reconstitution. The parts literally must be pulled apart in order to be put back together in a different way, melted in order to be reformed. And the process is terrifying. It requires tremendous faith to undergo the disintegration of the world you have known in the hopes that a new world might emerge from the ashes. And this, my friends, is what time it is. We need to understand that the spiritual warfare is already underway. The fire of human sacrifice is raging, brought not by Jesus and not by oppressed peoples who are rising up in resistance, but by those who would worship at the altar of white supremacy and rely upon that idol for their safety and prosperity. And we need to decide which side we are on. This is what time it is. In this time, we are being called to fight fire with fire, not with gunfire or explosives or hatred, let me be clear, but with the refiner's fire, the self-giving fire of love and truth as modeled for us by Jesus. We will know it's the refiner's fire burning in us if it makes us softer, more tender and stronger all at once, more vulnerable and more alive. Yes, it is going to bring division, maybe even within our own families. It will threaten the very institutions in which we have put our faith. But if we trust in God, something more life-giving will emerge from the ashes. There's a great story from the Desert Fathers that goes like this. Abba Lot went to Abba Joseph and said to him, Abba, as far as I can, I say my little office. I fast a little, I pray and meditate, I live in peace as far as I can, I purify my thoughts. What else can I do? Then the old man stood up and stretched his hands toward heaven. His fingers became like ten lamps of fire, and he said to him, If you will, you can become all flame. May we become all flame a refiner's fire of love and truth for this time. Amen. So what might it look like if we become all flame? As I worked on this podcast, I was so taken by the image of the refiner's fire, the way that the fire softens something that has become hard and calcified and not useful and turns it into something more malleable, more capable of transformation and ultimately stronger. I'd like to invite us into this practice of softening. If we find ourselves hardening, becoming rigid, maybe in the face of hard feedback from people of color, or maybe when we encounter internalized white supremacy in ourselves or others, can we just notice it and then focus on softening just a little bit, remembering that we are loved and that our safety and well-being lies with a loving and forgiving God, not with white supremacist systems of reward and punishment and eternal damnation. 
And then from this place, can we ask ourselves what is true? Is there some feedback we need to accept? Or is there some truth that we need to speak in love, even if our voice shakes, even if it might cause division in our relationships, at least temporarily? Maybe remember that love is not synonymous with niceness or civility, and it does not ever accommodate to violence. Then, taking this practice a step further, can we practice this refiner's fire, love, and truth with our white family members and friends? The request I'm hearing over and over from people of color, again, right now in the wake of El Paso and Dayton, is please don't unfriend your Trump voting relatives and friends. Don't unfriend the white supremacist. Stay in relationship if you can. Try to have the hard conversations, speaking the truth while holding a space for our white kin to rejoin the human family. And by the way, did you hear that remarkable speech by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the wake of the shootings last week? She said, speaking directly to white people being radicalized by the right, come back. Because there is a mother waiting for you, I know it. There is a teacher waiting for you saying, what happened to my kid? We will always be here to hold a space for you to come back. We will love you back. Friends, if she, a Latinx woman directly under attack by racist forces right now, can say that, then we can say it too. Finally, as I think about what it means to become flame, what it meant for Jesus to bring fire to the earth by giving himself, and what it meant for those people who risked themselves to save lives in El Paso, I want to invite you to think about getting trained to do security at actions organized by people who are fighting for their freedom. Black Lives Matter actions and immigrant liberation actions, vigils of Jews and Muslims remembering those they have lost. This is a great need. There's such a need for people who are willing to show up in solidarity and just keep an eye out for possible violence and de-escalate when needed. This is one of the ways that we can leverage privilege in the service of those more at risk while reducing our reliance on policing and preparing for the world after abolition of police. So find out who coordinated the security for actions that took place near you and ask them if they can direct you to trainings. Tell them you'd like to help out. In New York, you can check out the Audre Lorde Project. In the Bay Area, check out Community Ready Corps. For online trainings nationally, check out Hollaback's Bystander Intervention Webinars. Then show up when the call goes out for help. Is it scary to do security sometimes? You bet it is but so is walking down the street as a person who is not white, as a Jew, as a Muslim. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear how all this is landing for you, how your actions are going. You can interact with me by commenting on our Facebook posts or SoundCloud page. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. 
Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear on this podcast is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. Our sound editor this week is Maxwell Pearl. Thanks so much, Max. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torvik. <laughs>